let's go to Jonah 1. Jonah 1. Remember, our, we're in the Minor Prophets right now. Don't forget your Minor Prophets rap. All right? It's uh, Hosea, Joel, and Amos' tale, Obadiah, Jonah, and the Belly of the Whale. Okay? Jonah 1. It's the fifth book in the Minor Prophets. Uh, way past all those major prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel before the New Testament. All right? And uh, while, uh, while you're getting there, I'm going to do something that I love doing that really helps me uh, relax after a long day. Uh, we're going to read some headlines of Babylon Bee articles. Okay? <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. This might have happened this morning, guys. Okay? Man carefully selects which of his 28 study Bibles look best with his outfit. <laughs> Local teen adamant that church Wi-Fi speed is a gospel issue. <laughs> all right, here we go. So just context. Philippians 4.13 is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, okay? This might be the funniest one. Worship leader invokes Philippians 4.13 to fit into skinny jeans. <laughs> church mistakenly employs homeless musician thinking he was the new youth pastor they hired, okay? All right, and this one, uh, this one got me, all right? Evangelicals abandon Donald Trump in droves after he says McDonald's is better than Chick-fil-A. <laughs> the article goes on uh, and says, uh, this was a, uh, he told us he was a real Christian, one emotional former Trump supporter told reporters. We were okay with his crass comments, rude demeanor, and exploitation of our faith for political power, but this is beyond the pale. <laughs> All right, anybody know uh, what kind of literature the Babylon Bee is? Satire. Okay, anybody know what satire is? Okay, very good. So uh, it is a satire typically uh, makes up extreme, ridiculous situations so that all of us can see that some of those extreme ridiculousness live inside of us. Satire is supposed to make us laugh, uh, but also laugh at ourselves. It's supposed to, satire teaches us. Notice that. Uh, um, Local teen adamant that church Wi-Fi speed is a gospel issue. Y'all ever uh, gotten frustrated at your church Wi-Fi? You know, like, there's, there's a little bit of truth in each of those to make us uncomfortable. Taking the Bibles out to go with your outfit, I mean, whew. Okay, um, but satire exposes folly, okay, so that its audience can change. And um, the Babylon Bee's not perfect. I think they go too far occasionally. Um, but this morning, we're going to jump into Jonah, which is the only, that I know of, historically true satire. Yes, this book of the Bible we know so well is actually satire. It's the purpose of the book is to make fun of and expose the folly of its main character. We're going to say that this morning. Um, Tim Mackey, uh, a really good Bible teacher, he does this series called Read Scripture. It's on Right Now Media if you guys want to use it. Uh, he does overviews of books of the Bible, which is wonderful. But he, here's what he says about Jonah. Jonah is the subversive story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. We're going to find that's true. And we're going to find uh, that Jonah actually speaks to us. Um, the author of this story is possibly Jonah, possibly one of his contemporaries with whom Jonah shared his story. But God himself, who wrote this, wants us to be shocked and even to laugh at Jonah's unbelievable disobedience and also to see it in ourselves. So let's do that, and then we can marvel at the mercy of God to all of us. All right, here we go. Read the scripture. 
Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the, in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lot, and the lot fell, fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, these are the sailors, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, Lord, our prayer this morning, we just thank you for the gift of your word, is that we might receive it with meekness and that it might save our souls, um, that, it, that, that it would work out salvation in us as we hear it and respond to it. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, it's really tempting to introduce a lesson on Jonah 1 by cataloging all of the ridiculous things that Christians have done in history that are so counter to the gospel, like the burning of heretics at the stake, the combining of church and state, the crusades, all these things that are like, how could Christians do that? But I think that would start us off wrong. I think that would get us looking at other people's sins and away from ourselves. So I thought I could start with some things that are shocking, that are right here at home, right here in America, maybe right here in this room. So American Christians today, who are, by any estimation, richest generation of Christians to ever live, okay? Many of whom who have little placards at home, do Facebook posts about laying up your treasures in heaven, okay? These Christians only give 2.5% of their income to anything not just church, anything, all right? 
Only 7.4% of American Christians tithe, which is the giving of 10% of their income to their local church. Now, many of these Christians have good arguments about how the tithe is an Old Testament thing, and, you know, we don't hear it commanded in the New Testament, so we're kind of in the age of grace-giving. Um, while we walk into church with our $7 Starbucks drinks in a car we're paying three or $400 a month for, heading to lunch, 15 bucks a person, enjoying the benefits of our church, agreeably hearing about stewardship, and heading to a day when we're going to face the one who said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. What's going on here? Sounds a lot like Jonah. Also, uh, American Christians are rightly and righteously known as being annoyingly pro-life. Now, I am also annoyingly pro-life, right? Uh, we, we talk about this cultural issue all the time. Abortion is an evil thing, okay? God, God forgives and he's good, but right? Life is precious in the womb, right? Some of us have become one-issue voters on this issue, right? And many of these things are good. We should advocate for the unborn. But what a... What's always the most understaffed place in church? The nursery. Apparently, to many American Christians, children are precious and wonderful gifts of God until you have to deal with them. One more thing. This might be the closest to home. American Christians have, have Bibles in their own language, have pages and passages and passages of Scripture, again, in placards in their houses, that talk about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Beloved, let us love one another. We've known those verses since we were five. And yet, we are some of the most savage and divisive people there are. Our unbelieving co-workers get along better than us. Um, you guys ever scroll down onto the comment section, the comment section on like a Gospel Coalition post or a Desiring God article or a sermon? And just keep, the things that come out of Christians' mouths about each other, man. And it takes us coming up with fancy acronyms like weenie to even begin to get in the right direction. Now, some of you guys, especially if you're new, might be thinking, man, what axes we going to have to grind this morning? You know, like, wow, you had a bad week? Um, here's the thing. Our biggest temptation this morning, when we read about Jonah, we read about a guy who heard God's voice and ran from it. Our biggest temptation is going to be to think about those people out there, my friend who really needs to hear this talk, and what, God, what the God of heaven and earth wants Okay, is he wants you to see Jonah as a mirror into your own heart, into your own life. And, now, and again, some of you in this room are like, I tithe, I've served in the nursery, okay, and I don't, I'm not in a fight right now. I'm being obedient, and I want to say you're the person I'm talking to. Okay, we are, we are, we are literally in the same boat with Jonah, heading the same direction, and needed the same mercy. Let's dive in. I think I think we'll see how. Here we go. So first, uh, we, Jonah hears God's word in verses 1 and 2 and then flees. Uh, God says to Jonah in verse 2, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, say that ten times fast, from the presence of the Lord. Um, just Almost anyone who's heard the story of Jonah taught probably knows that Tarshish is literally the furthest away you can get on a map of the ancient world from Nineveh, okay? So if Tarshish is east, Jonah's going west, right? If it's north, he's going south. He is fleeing as far away as he can. 
Um, and you might wonder, uh, why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Is he just in a bad mood? What is going on? We actually learn later in the book why Jonah fled from God, fled from God's call. In Jonah 4, uh, I'll just summarize this, Jonah 3, he finally gets to Nineveh. It's a fun story how he gets there. We'll get there, okay? He preaches a five-word sermon. It's five words, okay? The entire city, from the king to the cows, repent. God delivers them, all right? And then, in Jonah 4, Jonah throws a hissy fit against God, okay? And tells him, this is why I fled, because I knew you were merciful, and I didn't want you to be merciful to them, okay? So, how can how did Jonah get there? Uh, the Ninevites, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. They were these, uh, these great pagan nation that had conquered Israel. They were some of Israel's most hated enemies. And so uh, Jonah hears God's voice to go and to love his enemies and to preach to them and that they may be saved. And he refuses. He says, I would rather die than see those people flesh. And uh, we see the results of his disobedience. There's this little, uh, little verb that's repeated over and over again in verses 1 through 6. Went down. You get this idea that Jonah is going further and further away from God's presence, closer and closer down into death. Um, look at verse 3. First he goes down to Joppa, uh, and then goes down into the boat. Uh, when, when the Lord sends a hurricane or a great wind on the sea, the mariners go to find, the mariners are doing all what they should be doing at the very end of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the boat and was fast asleep. Um, his, uh, his disobedience had made him spiritually callous, able to sleep in a hurricane even. Um, and what makes this worse is Jonah's unbelievable hypocrisy. I want you guys to see this, okay? Uh, look at verse 6, all right? A pagan captain, all right, who we'll get to him in a minute, okay? But Jonah is rebuked by an unbeliever here, all right, for his foolishness, all right? Wow. And then in, uh, in verse 9, Jonah tells the sailors, okay, about who he is. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Guys, that is baloney. If you fear, if you fear the God who made the sea, are you going to run away from him on the sea? Right? That's the stupidest thing anyone's ever said, okay? The, the author's making fun of him. Jonah's a, a hypocrite here. Um, and then the sailors ask him what to do, and he says, throw me overboard. And you might be thinking, okay, well, maybe Jonah's being selfless here. No, guys, what's the best way to get out of going to Nineveh? Die. die, okay? Jonah's saying, I would rather die than obey God. Remember, he's a prophet. He could have prayed. He could have called out to God. He could have resolved to go. God probably would have calmed the storm. Notice, if he really, if he really thought that, he could have just jumped overboard. You know what he wants to do? He wants to get the pagans to throw him overboard so God will judge them too. And Jonah 2, we'll see him pray. All right, His prayer of repentance in Jonah 2 includes those who love idols forsake their hope of God's love. He doesn't like these pagan guys who are trying to save his life. All right, All these little details are meant to point us to some shockingly ridiculous disobedience. And to make it worse... Uh, in a very satirical but true way, Jonah is surrounded by some people who you would think to be the worst of the worst, and they turn out to be some of the most sensitive, God-fearing pagans around. No offense to you Navy guys who are here, but uh, sailors through history have had 
the reputation of being some of the worst of the worst. No offense, okay, but you all, you all heard the phrase, he swears like a sailor, right? Okay, you all heard that, okay? Um, it's because uh, typically sailors' professions let them be anonymous. They could go from city to city. They could do all sorts of terrible things and not get caught, right? So uh, the, the sailors here, you should know, these are who do you expect to be the worst of the worst? But look, they actually end up in contrast to Jonah, to be extremely sensitive to God and to be soft. Notice, while Jonah is asleep, the sailors are very woke, as we say today. In verse 5, the sea comes, the storm comes, and they are crying out to their gods. Now, they're ignorant, okay? They don't know who to cry out to yet, right? But at least they're acting. They know this storm has come from God. Jonah's passed out, okay? He's asleep, and they're acting. They know something's going on. They take spiritual action to relieve themselves, and they throw the cargo overboard. They, they, they take actions to save themselves. Uh, notice again, Jonah gets rebuked by pagan captain. In verse 10, um, after Jonah gives his uh, you know, religious baloney, okay, they, uh, the men are, in verse 10, exceedingly afraid, like you should be, when you're in the middle of a hurricane that God has sent, okay? Um, and then finally, when Jonah says, throw me overboard, the sailors act in love towards him. They try to row to save his life, this idiot. Um, finally, when they do throw him overboard, they pray. Out of one, sounds like out of one of the Psalms in verse 14. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. And they Jonah overboard, the sea ceased, and they feared God, offered sacrifice, made vows, and worshipped him. Maybe there were even some legitimate conversions. But here's the point, guys. Okay, God's prophet, the person who should speak God's word, won't even hear it. And pagan unbelievers who do not know their right hand from their left, according to Jonah, are sensitive and responding to him and doing the things that please When I hear about pastors in the South who won't speak about race because it'll get them in trouble, or when I hear about gay couples who are willing to foster children, but the Christian family of five doesn't want to mess up their pretty life, okay, I think of Jonah and the Sailors. There are examples of this today. There are unbelievers whose social and political views align way more with God's um, with God's desires and many of ours. That should shame us. And it, hopefully, we can be humble enough to laugh at ourselves this morning. But here's the question, okay? Again, I'm going to say this four or five times this morning because it's so hard when we read this story. Here's the question, all right? Um, if we don't answer this question correctly, we're going to find ourselves bottom of the boat, dead asleep in a hurricane, all right? Here's the question. Whose sin ultimately is on display here, right? Did God write this book just to tell us of this guy who lived a few thousand years ago who was really dumb? Is this sin primarily for your buddy, right, who's in a Jonah phase of life? You guys have probably heard that, right? I was acting like Jonah way back then. Does this not talk about your past? Or is this a picture, a mirror, right, into the attitudes and responses of your heart this morning to God's word? Is God being so kind to us to show us this picture of our ridiculous disobedience 
so we can see his ridiculous mercy and respond to it. Listen, I'll just say something hard to you, okay? You are not primarily the victim of your story. You're not primarily the hero of your story. You are primarily the criminal in need of rescue. You're primarily the beloved son oftentimes sits in his father's face. That's what the Bible tells us about ourselves. And until we can receive that, and until we can receive it, that is in us for as long as we're going to live on this earth. And we've got to be responding to that on a daily basis. Until you can receive that, you will not grow or progress in the Christian life. Um, let me give a couple examples of how this might be relevant, how we might be Jonah's, okay? The story starts with God calling Jonah to go to lost people that they can be saved. And Jonah refuses, and he flies the other direction. Why? Because he hates them. Now you're like, Leland, okay. I may not be like an evangelist, all right? But I don't hate lost people. I'm not mean to them. Let's let an atheist uh, rebuke us this morning. Here, uh, here, Pin Gillette. I probably jacked his name up, okay? But he's a uh, he's a magician, illusionist. He's an atheist, okay? And this little YouTube video a few years ago, very powerful. Here's what he says: Pin Gillette, an atheist. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate someone to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He says this, hey, listen, if I believed that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I'd tackle you, and this is more important than that. Wow. According to this atheist, okay, being a Christian, having the gospel, and knowing the whole world is going to hell, spending your life primarily trying to survive work and relax and find a spouse, okay, that is hate towards unbelievers. And I agree with him. Indifference to the fate of the lost is hatred towards them. Now again, I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying this so you can see yourself. You can see we all got a little Jonah in us this morning. We're much more comfortable here, right, than where God calls us to. One more example. So, we're Christians. We believe that Jesus is real, that he's bringing us to glory, that he's risen from the grave, that death is beaten, that he's given us the spirit, that he promises to be the fountain of living water, that he died to bring us to God, the father of lights, with whom life overflows from yet most of us have come here this morning joyless, somber, depressed, discontent, looking around for the next good thing to make us satisfied. Guys, that, you know what that is? That is hearing Jesus' voice say to you, I will satisfy you, and then running from it. That's what it is. Guys, I, I know people. People have said to me, people that I love, hey, Lewin, I just don't know why God won't let me be happy. Why is he not giving me joy? We've, we're so callous to our own sin that we blame God for it. Listen, I, I know I know life can be tough. I know that there's emotional makeups that make sadness and discontentment more likely. I, I get that. I've been there. Okay, But at its root, joy is something to be pursued and fought for and trusted in Jesus with. And most of us, if we're honest, we've heard Jesus' voice. 
about that. We've heard him say it, and we've run. There is some Jonah in each of us. Now, uh, here's the good news. The rest of, the, the rest of this is good news, fortunately. Okay, Girls, would you ever put makeup on without a mirror? Now, I know most of you guys don't wear makeup. You're just so naturally radiant, okay? But would you ever put makeup on without a mirror? Have you ever tried? Did? Okay, that's a bad example. Guys, would you give yourself a haircut without a mirror or shave? No, okay? No, all right? Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to change when you can't see. You have to see yourself to change and be effective in that. And God is so good that in this passage, he would give us a mirror, okay? A mirror into the way we act and think when God speaks to us to do things we don't want to do. He's given that to us so we can be thankful for the mercy of Jesus, so we can see our sins, we can change. So Jonah is shockingly disobedient. He teaches us of our own shocking disobedience. But fortunately, he is not the only character in the story, um, and neither is his disobedience the end of the story. We see that God responds to Jonah's shocking disobedience with shocking mercy. Notice uh, throughout this whole passage, even though it's so tempting to focus on Jonah, Notice that the Lord is the one who initiates everything here, right? Uh, notice that in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, God speaks to Jonah. He starts this process, right? Uh, and he doesn't just speak to Jonah. He invites Jonah into the story of his love, right? Why does God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Because he has a heart for unbelievers. He has a heart for people who are lost. His heart overflows with love, and he's inviting Jonah into that. And... Uh, just notice, um, God knows Jonah's heart before he speaks to him, right? God knows of all the racism and the hatred that lives in Jonah towards these Ninevites. And he will not let Jonah stay there. He brings the issue up to Jonah. That's good news. Jonah runs, rejects God, throws his fist in the sky at God's command. And what does God do? Does God punish Jonah? No. Notice that this hurricane does not harm anybody. You all see that? God sends a storm. Everybody escapes. Nobody dies. God uh, hurls a great wind on the sea just as a wonderful teaching illustration. He warns. He disciplines. He corrects. He does not harm. God takes. God loves his rebellious, sinful prophet so much that he refuses to leave him in his sin. And finally, notice when Jonah is finally going to get what he deserves, which is death. All right, in verse 17, God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. Um, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God rescues Jonah from the consequences of his sin. So notice that. God, God invites Jonah into his love. God disciplines Jonah in his sin, does not punish him. And he even rescues Jonah from the consequences of and uh, what is really, really incredible about this passage is Jonah does not just go down in history as the idiot prophet who ran away from Nineveh. Jesus actually talks about him. Uh, people are asking for a sign, and Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will be in the belly of earth for three days and three nights. So that means... Why can God be merciful to this disobedient prophet? 
because there was another prophet who came, an obedient prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, who listened to God's call to go to his enemies, right? But who was thrown overboard and did not get rescued. And he drowned under God's wrath. And he faced it. Jesus was punished in place of his people so that they could receive God's mercy. So listen, if the punishment that Jonah deserves, that you and I deserves, has been poured out on Jesus, that means that everything in your life at this moment is mercy. It's all mercy. The thing that looks most like a hurricane to you is mercy. If you just had something, if you've been walking through this secret, man, I don't even really know if I'm a Christian right now. There's been this sin that I've held on to for years, and I am callous towards God, and I don't really love other people, listen, and I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Is that you? That is a merciful thing. It is a mercy for God to be working in your heart. Have you asked that question? Your whole life is mercy. None of it's punishment. Just rest there. Just rest at wherever you are this morning, even if it's in the middle of disobedience, or coming out of some disobedience, or coming out of something really hard. It's mercy. Um, and also, rejoice in the fact and embrace the fact that the Father loves you so much that he refuses to leave you as you are. Right? That's, that's the story. That's the Christian message, right? Come however you are to Jesus. Receive his love, and he will not allow you to change. Right? That's faith and repentance. God loves you so much okay, that he is, he is about your good, your ultimate good, you changing into the likeness of Jesus so much that he will call you to it out of his word, and if you don't respond, he will do all sorts of junk in your life so that you grow. And that's a good thing. That's a great way. To, guys, there, there are two ways to embrace your life. All right? One is, come on, God. Let me do the stuff I want to do. Right? Give me what I want. Stop messing my circumstances up. Another way to say is, man, God's agenda in my life is that I look like Jesus. Everything in my life, even that one thing I just do not get, his agenda there is to make me look like Jesus. So let that give you some peace. Embrace that. Embrace that God's agenda for your life is change. Right? Guys, understanding that you're a sinner, even knowing your sin, is not what Jesus wants. He wants you to see it, to embrace his mercy, and to change. That's his plan for you. Finally, I'll just say this one more time because I just know you're in here. Um, if it's all mercy, God loves you. If you're secure in that, can't you let go of your self-righteousness this morning? I know some of you here, your, your identities are wrapped up in the fact that you're a good Christian, that this is not true of you. That other people might be like this, and your friends might be this, but it's not you. Right? I just want to say, man, you are secure in the Father's love. You're secure in it. You can admit this about yourself. And the only way to change is to admit it. To admit it and to change. Uh, also, one of the young, young adults I said, uh, I was talking to said, you know, I've gone to Tarshish and realized that you always end up in Nineveh. <laughs> and uh, and that's funny. It's, it's true, okay? Um, and I just encourage you guys, if there's something in your life, you know it's not right. Just, you can avoid the hurricane. 
right? If that's the basis motivation you need, if your heart's just not in a good place to hear that, change reduces stake this morning, and you just want to avoid mess in your life, okay? That's a good motivation, right? You can avoid the mess here. Respond to the word, hear it, embrace it. So uh, I was a 19-year-old baby Christian in college. I think I was a sophomore. And um, one of my friends in campus outreach was trying to disciple me. And uh, his next step in discipling me was to confront me about the fake ID that I still had and used regularly to go out with my friends, okay? Anybody want to guess how I responded? Uh, I said, hey, man, hey, Hudson, do you speed? This is invalidation of me, by the way. Okay, do, do you speed? He's like, he's like, oh, I mean, a little bit, but like, ever. Do you ever go to speed one? He goes, yeah, I do. He's like, well, when you stop speeding, I'll give you my fake ID. That's how I responded. That's mature, right? We're just breaking the law, man. Come on. Well, three weeks later, I was at the uh, Harris Teeter on East Bay. Again, as a Christian, 19-year-old, stupid, arrogant, okay? And uh, I ran into this cashier who I'm sure wasn't getting paid much, but was on a fake ID rampage, like her mission in life. She looked at me and she said, fake ID. I said, I said no, it's not. Get back. She goes, I'll give you two choices, all right? That's how I do with my children. It's so bad. Okay, I'll give you two choices, all right? I can keep this, or we can call the police and see what they say about it. It's like, have a nice night, ma'am. I was unwilling to hear God's voice through the, uh, through the pleas of a friend. And so God jacked my life up a little bit. All right, I didn't go buy any more fake IDs. That's a bad idea. I was stubborn and rebellious and foolish and running away from God. And in the moment, in that moment, I was too callous to see God's hand for my good in my circumstances. And still, he was merciful and faithful and good. And that's not just a one-time thing. Three years ago, sitting next to her in worship, we should be foster parents. I go, you are crazy. And the Lord just would not stop bringing it up. It's in my story. All right? I hear God's voice. I disobey. I experience his mercy, whether that's at the cross or in the, the hurricane. And he changes me. And if you can recognize this morning that it is your story too, you'll be a lot humbler, holier, happier for it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, see the Jonah in each of us. Um, give us the grace to respond not primarily with guilt or um, with despair or with arrogance, but just with humility. Help us to embrace that you're you're merciful and you're good to us. And I pray in light of that mercy, you help us change. Really just, I just pray that you particularly reveal um, what you would have us turn from and how you'd have us grow.